Tonight we're going to be in chapter 2, finishing chapter 2. In uh, verses 10 through 18, so Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, in a study I'm calling Christ Knows. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the chance to get together as a church and to talk about you. Lord, we're reminded in the passage, Lord, uh, that passage of scripture where it says, Lord, that as we often as we talk about you, Lord, you come and you listen, Lord, and you commune with us, Father, and that's really our desire is that just as the disciples would sit around you and, and hear you speak and you would teach them and reveal things about yourself and about your plan, Lord, even so, through your word, Lord, that we would allow your spirit to teach us. Lord, that he would reveal to us more and more about who you are and, Lord, about what you have done. Lord, and then those things would be taken, Lord, and applied to our life, that we would grow in our faith in you and our walk with you, Lord, and that we would be able to teach others, Lord, the things that we have learned. So, Lord, bless us, Lord, we pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So, being a kid of the 90s and loving sports, all sports, I was familiar with the phrase, Bo Knows, right? Or that old phrase, Bo Knows. Now, I found this online about the Bo Knows campaign. Bo Knows was an advertising campaign for Nike cross trainers, probably the first right, Nike cross trainers that came out. The shoes ran in 1989 and 90 and featured the professional baseball and football player Bo Jackson. Jackson was the first athlete in, mo- in the modern era to play professional baseball and football in the same year. He was the perfect spoke- spokesman for the shoe geared towards an athlete actively engaged in more than one sport at a time or with little time between activities to switch to sport-specific footwear. And so Bo Jackson, man, he was like, you know, he was good in both sports. Remember Jordan tried it for a while. You know, he tried to get out of basketball. Should have just stuck with basketball. Tried to do baseball for a while. But Bo knows. And then I think Gretzky came along, right? And said, yeah, Bo doesn't know anything. But that's something separate. Now, if the writer of Hebrews was to make a point, he could say, Christ knows. You see, tonight in verses 10 through 18, the writer is going to teach us that we should focus on Jesus in our walk. Because Jesus alone is our leader. He, is the, he alone is the one who can do it all. Specifically as it relates to our life as we walk with him. And so he's going to present really the credentials of the Lord. And what he did in becoming a man and dying on the cross for our sins. And the conclusion after all this is that, man, we need to follow Jesus. We need to draw closer to him and keep our eyes on him. And so the writer is going to point out four things tonight in this passage to show us all that Jesus accomplished by becoming a man and going to the cross. So the first thing that we learn in this passage, in verse 10, we see that Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Verse 10, it says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And so the writer begins this verse here by saying, for it was fitting for him. The word for looked back to verse 9, and that's where we left off last week in this passage. We saw how Jesus, for a little time, made himself lower than the angels. In other words, God became a man. He took a human body and came to this earth, born through the Virgin Mary, in order to walk this earth and to teach man, but also to die for man. He was born to die. Why? Because man has to die for man's sin. 
And all this, the writer says, was done by the grace of God. It says, but for the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. That is everyone in the human race. And so the writer picks up on this now again. And he goes on, he points back to that, but he's gonna continue on from that point, pressing forward. Here he says, it was fitting for him to do that. The him here is the father. It was fitting for God the father to send his son Jesus to this earth to die on the cross for our sins. The phrase, it is fitting for him, can actually be said to be that it was consistent with his nature. And so as you look at God in the Bible and you look at the death and the coming of Jesus, that was consistent with who God is. And we see that in the Bible. We all know John 3.16, right? If you don't know it, you should memorize it. People say, I don't know how to preach the gospel. Well, John 3.16. All, man, think about it. All you really need to know is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now notice that, for God so loved the world. And then what did he do? He sent his only begotten son. And so it was the love of God that moved the father to send Jesus to this earth. Grace has been called love in action. And so by the grace of God, he takes the death for everyone. Well, yeah, it was consistent with him. It was fitting for him to do that because that's who God is. Since God is a God of love, he has to and, and wants to save all men. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9 says. So it's consistent with who he is. Now the writer goes on and talks a little more about our father. He says, for whom are all things and by whom are all things? You see, the chief end of mankind and the reason why you and I were created was to glorify God. People ask, well, why, why are we made? Well, we were made to glorify God. Now, sometimes people have problems with that. Like, wait a second, that sounds kind of selfish. How can God make man in order to glorify him? Well, let me ask you this question. Doesn't God deserve it? And he does. God has the right to ask it because he's the only person who can actually deserve it. Well, how can he deserve it? Well, because he's also the creator of all things, from whom are all things. You see, because God is the creator of man, he has the right to receive worship. He has the right to receive glory. He has the right to tell us how to live our life, right? I mean, everybody who has a car, I mean, the manufacturer, they're gonna tell you how that car runs best because they made it. In the same way, God knows you and I. He knows the fabric of our being and he knows that we were made to worship. We were made to glorify him. And as we do that, that's when we find our true peace. We find our true joy. Now, talking about the work of God through the cross, talks about God. It says, here's what his purpose was through the cross. He had two goals. Number one, it was to bring many sons to glory. And so when God sent Jesus to die on the cross, his purpose of doing that was to bring many sons to glory. I love that because it shows us that salvation is not a trial period to see if you're gonna make it to the end. You know, it's not like, okay, well, you believe in Jesus, well then, man, if you try real hard and make it to the end, well, man, then you get the prize. You get to go to heaven. No, it doesn't say that at all. The purpose of the cross was that many sons would come to glory. And that's really the purpose and the end goal of your faith, of your salvation. You see, you, were, you believed in Jesus and God the Holy Spirit came and lived inside of you. You were born again. God also declared you righteous by faith. But then the Bible also says that he's not done with you. He's continuing to transform you by the power of God. 
God actually holds you by his power. Peter says that. You're held by the power of God. And he's making you more into the image of Jesus Christ. That work's not done until you're glorified with God in heaven. It could come through the rapture, which I hope happens first, or through death. But either way, the end of your salvation is gonna be glory. That's why we don't teach that a person can lose their salvation. Because it contrad- it's a contradiction in turn because the whole point of your salvation is that you will be saved. It's, it's, a, it's the work of God from start to finish. Now there's another purpose through the cross that the writer pulls out here because he's talking about Jesus' humanity. He says that through the cross, the captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. I like this word captain here. The word captain can be translated author, as it is in Hebrews 12 too, leader, originator, founder, pioneer, or here's this one, trailblazer. That's what it means, trailblazer. So if you get a trailblazer jersey, you can preach the gospel that way if you like Portland, right? Jesus is our trailblazer. He is the one who cut our path to God, to the cross. You see, there was no way to God before Jesus Christ. I mean, yes, mankind was given sacrifice in order to, um, you know, just cover their sin, and as, you know, and as they put their faith in God, you know, they would have a relationship with God. But there was no way to fully be forgiven of your sin. The sacrifices only gave you a continual reminder each year that the fact that you still had sin. But Jesus is the only way to God. He is the one who cut the path. And he did that through his death. He did that through his resurrection. Now, what is the writer saying here that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Like, what does that mean? Well, we know it's not referring to the fact that Jesus became morally perfect through suffering, right? It's not what he's saying. He's not saying that, well, yeah, Jesus to the cross was made morally perfect. Well, that doesn't fit at all because Jesus is called our Passover lamb in the Bible. And, he, and, and, and as being the lamb of God, you had to be spotless and without blemish. They would actually inspect the Passover lamb before the lamb would be slain. Even so, Jesus on his last week, right, was inspected by the religious leaders. And Jesus even said, hey, which one of you, can, uh, you know, accuses me of sin? None of them could give an answer. And so, it's not talking about moral perfection. Well, it's talking about the fact that Jesus would finish or complete the work of God. That's what the word perfect means. It means to finish or complete. And so, based on this, you have one of two suggestions, maybe both. First, God completed his will through Jesus' suffering. You see, our salvation couldn't be accomplished through Jesus' perfect life. And so, just, you know, just based on the fact that Jesus came and lived a perfect life on earth can't save you. He had to die for you. And so, yes, Jesus, in a sense, completed or finished God's will in God's revelation on the cross as he died for your sins. It was made perfect, or it was completed. A second idea that some point out, has the idea of completion in experience and as Jesus was fully human. The Amplified Bible says this. It has a little um, bracket there, and it says, God brought to maturity the human experience necessary to be perfectly equipped for his office as high priest. And so it's a possibility, since the writer is talking about Jesus becoming man, He says, hey, check this out. Jesus is your high priest, and he can sympathize with you. He can minister to you because he was taught this experience through the cross, that he even suffered 
in your place. And the father was able to teach him maturity, this maturity that he would use in his ministry as a high priest to minister to man through his experiences. And so the first point the writer says here is, hey, listen, let's, let's talk about Jesus for a second. Let's compare him to the angels. And that's really what the writer is doing in this section. He said, which angel is your captain? Which angel can cut the way to God? Which angel was willing to go to the cross for you as a man and die in your place so he can save you and so he can minister to you? None. Second, we see Jesus as our sanctifier in verses 11 through 13. It says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, he who sanctifies is Jesus, right? He's the one who does that work. Those who are being sanctified are you and I, believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus. The word sanctified, we don't use that word very much today, right? I'm sanctified. I mean, if you're a Christian, you do. You speak Christianese at times to people, and they kind of look at you and like, whoa, what's he saying? You know? But, you know, but these are terms that the Bible uses, and they're important terms. We shouldn't just discard them because nobody understands them. We should take people up to what the scripture teaches. And that's what we do by going verse by verse. The word sanctified means to be set apart from sin. It means to be holy. And that's what the word holy means. It means set apart from sin. Now there's a couple of uses of sanctification in the Bible. For example, when you believe on Jesus, the Bible says that you've been sanctified positionally. That is, God looks at you as being set apart. That's why the Bible calls believers saints. You know the Bible calls you a saint? And so you can go and tell your friends and people at work that, hey, I'm a saint, Saint Jacob. I mean, some people might get offended and want to try to persecute you, you know, but it's okay because you are. You're a saint. You're set apart in the eyes of God by your faith in Jesus Christ. He set you apart from the world. Colossians says that we were once in the kingdom of darkness, and now we've been translated or taken and placed into the kingdom of light. So you're set apart. You're a different creation now in Christ from this dark world that you live in. Also, there's a future sanctification that we experience as a believer. One day, you will be totally and perfectly set apart from sin. That day's not gonna come until you're in heaven, but it will come one day when we awaken the likeness of Jesus. We'll be perfectly glorified. We'll be totally set apart from sin. Until that time, there's the here and now. And this is what this verse is talking about. Those who are being sanctified, notice that, we're being sanctified. It's a process that the Lord is working. The Lord is working in your life now, setting you apart from the world. Well, how does he do that? Well, he does it by the conviction of the Spirit. As you're walking with the Lord and you get around things you know you shouldn't be doing, and what does the Spirit do? He convicts you. You start thinking, I don't know if I should be here. Well, yeah, you shouldn't because the Spirit's talking to you right now. He's telling you you shouldn't be there. He's convicting you. He's, He's teaching you to walk in truth. Also, God does this work through his word. That's what Jesus said, right? Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us by your word. God does it. As we learn more about the Bible, the Holy Spirit is able to take those things and bring them to our remembrance and convict us by them. I still remember that after I gave my life you know, to Jesus, I tried to go back and you know, smoke weed with my friends and stuff like that, you know, and drugs and I remember I was super convicted and I knew it was the Holy Spirit just like on my heart, like convicting me and I knew I was wrong. And like before that time of becoming a Christian, I didn't think anything of it. But now as a Christian, I knew I can't do this anymore. I had to separate myself from that. 
And that's the work of God, and he'll, he'll continue to do that. And I think the closer you draw to Jesus, the more the Spirit will work to sanctify you. We see that experience in the life of Paul, right? Paul said, hey, I am, I'm the chief of sinners, right? And, I mean, that's, that's pretty bad because he recognized himself in the light of God. And then he went on and says, hey, I'm the worst of all the apostles. And then he went on, you know, finally and said, um, well, actually, the worst was that he was the chief of all sinners. But, so, but, but he recognized that the closer as he got to Jesus, the more he realized how much of a sinner he really was. And that's what God does in our life. Now, Jesus sanctifies us. All those who are sanctified are all of one. That's what he says here. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. All of one what? Well, I don't think it's the Father because that could include angels in there, right? The all of one refers to our nature and the fact that Jesus has a human nature and we have a human nature. So you and I are one with Jesus because he became a man and he died for us. And that's what the writer says here. We're all of one. He, and because of that, he's not ashamed to call us brethren and sisters. You can add sisters in there. Through our faith in Jesus, he's made it possible that you and I are now part of the family of God. Romans 8 says that we're joint heirs with Christ in this work of God. And so God actually looks at you as part of his family. You're actually a brother to Jesus. He's still God. He's still your Lord. Yes. But in the sense, you've become joint heirs with him. And because of that, he's not ashamed to call you brothers. He's not ashamed to be associated with you. He's not ashamed to be associated with me. That's pretty amazing, huh? I mean, sometimes people are ashamed to be associated with other people. But you know what? Jesus says, hey, if you believe in me, I'm not ashamed to be associated with you. The Lord loves us. If the Lord is not ashamed of being associated with us, then we should never be ashamed to be associated with him. Right? Sometimes people say, you're a Christian? Well, yeah, kind of. I kind of go to church. I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not a Jesus freak, but I, I go to church. No. Hey, I'm part of the family of God. Jesus is my brother. He died for me. He's not ashamed of me. I'm not going to be ashamed of him. It's part of, the, it's part of the, the work that the Lord did in our life. Now, the writer wants to pull out scriptures to prove what he's saying here. He's not just going to say it. He's going to back up his quote with scriptures. And he does that in verse 12. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And so the writer pulls out the Old Testament again. He goes back to the Psalms. And he quotes Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. If you've never read Psalm 22, I would encourage you to read it. Psalm 22 and Psalm 110 are used often in, in this epistle. Psalm 22 is a, was what we call a messianic psalm. The word Messiah means anointed one. It's talking about the one who would come and die. It's Jesus. He was the Messiah. And Psalm 22 was written by David, but it predicted perfectly the death of Jesus on the cross. And so the first half of the psalm talks about Jesus as he was on the cross and what he was seeing going on around him. And we believe that that is why Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's how the rabbis would reference places in scripture. They would quote a passage and most of them memorized the scripture. And so they would know exactly what he was referring to. And that's what Jesus was talking about on the cross. He was referring their attention to what was going on. Now, the second half of Psalm 22 is futuristic. It's even future from our time. 
as Jesus was on the cross, he looked forward into the future to when the time when he would rule and reign in the kingdom of God. Jesus, the Bible says, is gonna come back, Revelation 20 says, and he's gonna establish his thousand-year kingdom on this earth. He's gonna reign for a thousand years. Satan's gonna be bound, and he's gonna reign. It hasn't happened yet. Obviously, Satan's not bound. We all agree that, right? But a time will come, and that's what this psalm refers to. Jesus looks forward to him when he is ruling and reigning with his brethren, with you and I, his brothers and sisters, in the kingdom of God. It's gonna be pretty amazing. We're told here that he will declare your, or God's name to his brethren. And so it's gonna be an amazing time of learning about God and God's will. All these questions that you have about God and about why God does certain things, we're gonna learn from Jesus. He's gonna declare God's name to us. He's gonna teach us all about God. We're gonna learn these things. We're gonna rejoice and fellowship and learn more about him and his work. But also we're gonna have a time of worship. He said, in the midst of the assembly, I, that is Jesus, will sing praise to you, the Father. And so we're gonna be worshiping Jesus, but he's gonna be worshiping God too. It's pretty amazing. He's gonna be leading worship. Jesus will sing praise to the Father. Pretty awesome. As he sung that psalm, right, that hymn in Matthew and and, and also in Mark, as we saw on Sunday, even so in the kingdom of God, he's gonna sing So the kingdom is gonna be a big worship conference of learning about God and and worshiping him. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now the writer takes from Isaiah 17 and 18, two verses put together in one. Now the context of this this passage is interesting. The first part is talking about um, Isaiah's trust in God. The fact that Isaiah would put his trust in the Lord. And the second part is Isaiah's thanks for the children, Hazbaz, which is one of Isaiah's sons. It's an amazing name. If you're looking for a name, Hazbaz is, is probably one of the best. I can't even say it. But he was giving God thanks for the children that God had blessed him with. Well, the writer here takes this verse and he applies it to Jesus. So scholars believe that these verses are to be understood in the sense of him saying, these verses are like this. And kind of that's how they, they, they fit. Hey, those verses are like this. In the sense that, yeah, Jesus is gonna say, hey, here am I with the children God has given me. Jesus put his trust in the Father. He did that when he became a man and surrendered his will to the Father and walked his earth as a man and died on the cross. And through that, he was able to win souls to the Father. He was able to allow mankind who believe in him to become children of God, his brothers and joint heirs. Third, we see Jesus as the Satan conqueror in verses 14 and 15. In so much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So the children are flesh and blood. That is, the people that Jesus would come and die for, those who would be saved and be with Jesus in the kingdom, they're flesh and blood. Because of that, or likewise, Jesus would share in the same nature. It's obvious that Jesus would become a man, that he could die for us. And so that's what we've been saying throughout this whole study. The second person of the Trinity became a man through the virgin birth. What did he do? He added a divine, or excuse me, he added a human nature to his divine nature. That's what he did. 
the, you know, he didn't lose his deity, but he added a human nature. And so when Jesus walked this earth, he was 100% God and 100% man. He had two natures, both God and man. And Jesus um, walked this earth and he suffered for us. But also he destroyed the power of the enemy. Now, the more I read about Jesus' work on the cross, the more I'm in awe. I mean, and really, if you think about it, I mean, the world looks at the cross as foolishness, and that's what Paul says. To the Jews, the stumbling block, to the world, they look at it as foolishness. Like, really, you serve a person who died on the cross? But to us, it's the power of God, it's the wisdom of God, because we see all that God has accomplished through the cross. We had a series on the cross of Christ uh, about a year or so ago, and we saw that through the cross, all that Jesus has done, you know, all that he did for us. Now, one of those things was he destroyed the power of Satan because Satan here says has the power of death. Now, the word destroy in Greek does not mean annihilation, but it means rendered inoperative. And so Satan has been rendered powerless. He no longer has the power of death. You see, God is in control of the believer's life. It is God who's in total control. The enemy, he can tempt, he can test, but ultimately we're in the hands of God. He has been rendered powerless. Verse 15, and he's also able to release those who through fear of death all, uh, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Mankind before we came to Christ are held captive. We were all of our lifetime subject to bondage. What was this bondage? Well, it's the fear of death. Mankind is afraid to die. And as we come to Christ, he takes away that fear of death. Now, we might still be afraid of how we're gonna die, right? Like, ooh, I don't wanna think about that, right? But yet, the fear of death itself is gone because as we talked about in John 11, Jesus is the, retru- the resurrection and the life. Through Christ, we can live. Through Christ, we can know for a fact that when I die, I'm gonna live again. And the Bible refers to Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits mean that because he rose, there's evidence that others are also going to, going to rise. And so we no longer have to fear death. Death is no longer, you know, something we need to fear. It's actually a way that we come to God. And so um, we can have that, that hope, that, that peace. Fourth, we see Christ as our high priest in verses 16 through 18. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So the writer begins this point with a true statement here. He says, indeed, or in other words, he said, hey guys, it's clear from scriptures. He said, you guys know this. The Bible doesn't teach that Jesus gives aid to angels. There's nowhere in the scripture that says that Jesus will save the fallen angels. There's nowhere. He didn't become an angel to save fallen angels. But what does he do? He gives aid to the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham is mankind. God told Abraham in Genesis 12 that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, part of the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham understood that, that through him, through his line, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So from his line. Now, that promise would get more narrow as it works through the Old Testament. That was passed on to Isaac. Then it was passed on to Jacob. Then it was passed on to Judah Then it was passed on to David. And then through David, if you follow his line through his son, Nathan, 
it goes to Mary. And there, God was born through the Virgin Mary through the bloodline of Abraham, right? He became a man through that line. So it is through Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus was born a Jew to redeem his people, the Jews whom God made a promise to, the Savior. But what about all mankind? Well, Paul gives us good news in Galatians 3.8. He says, but also to the Gentiles and not just to Jews that this promise came because God said to all nations will be blessed. And so, yeah, Jesus came to save Jews, but also he came to save all mankind. And so this promise, this spiritual promise is given to all mankind through Abraham and Jesus fulfilled that. And so Jesus became a man in order to fulfill this promise in order to save us. Verse 17, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Here's another word, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the writer sums up what he's been saying about God becoming a man. He says, therefore, he said, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brother. He had to become a man. God had to become a man. The Hebrews were struggling with the fact that God became a man. And the writer of Hebrews says, hey, God had to become a man. If he didn't become a man, mankind wouldn't be saved. He had to become a man because he had to be our high priest who would offer his own life as a sacrifice for sin. He uses the word propitiation. And that word propitiation has two meanings. First is mercy seat. That's the way it's translated in the Old Testament. You know, in the tabernacle, in the temple, they had a mercy seat, right? And once a year, the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat, and the sins of the people would be propitiated, or they would, God's wrath would be satisfied with sin for that year. Well, Jesus, through his death, satisfied God's wrath towards sin. That's the other meaning. And so when Jesus died on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. God was satisfied in the sense that his law was broken, and so Jesus paid our penalty, but also Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, so therefore God was satisfied in his righteousness. Now here's an amazing truth. When you and I believe in Jesus, we become in the beloved. We, now, we are now seen in Jesus. And so when God looks at us, he's satisfied. We always wanna see that passage where, Jesus, where God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we think, oh man, I wish God would look at me like that. He does look at you like that because you're in the beloved. God looks at you and says, in whom I am well pleased. Think about that. God is satisfied with, with us. He's satisfied with us. We don't have to try to please him by working our way to heaven. Now we should wanna please him because of his grace, but he's satisfied through the death of Jesus. We can rest in that. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. So not only did Jesus make a way to God and save us, but he's also able to sustain us. We're sustained by the fact that he is able to minister to us in every area of life. And he was able to do that through his suffering. He was tempted, so he knows what it's like to be tempted and tested. He wasn't tempted from within, like you and I, with the flesh but he was tempted from without by Satan. And he, through his cross, learned experience of how to minister to man. And so he's able to aid those who are tempted. The word aid is a cool word. It means to run at the cry of. Those who are tempted, as we cry out to God, Jesus will run to our cry. That's what he's saying here. 
he is able to run at the cry of those. The old English word is succor, which is the word run to. And so God became a man, not only to save us from our sin, but to sustain us as we walk with him. So in closing, Christ knows. Christ knows. You name it, he's better. Put the prophets up. The writer says, Jesus is greater than the prophets. Put the angels up there. The writer says, Jesus is greater than the angels. This shows us, once again, that we need to follow Jesus in our walk with the Lord. We need to commit our ways to the Lord and follow him. He is our leader. He's our captain. And he is the only one who's qualified to be our sanctifier, our conqueror, and our high priest. Amen?